have the have the people all assembled. <laughs> that was quite a process. Can you hear in the back? You're all right. Yes, louder. Good. Okay. So we here we are uh, towards the end of the second full day. And uh, you may be wondering where the happy is. <laughs> maybe not. Maybe it's been very happy and easeful and filled with beautiful mind states and no body pain and all of that. That's good. Till it goes away. <laughs> and then it'll be your chance to suffer, but... Mostly from, from clinging, probably, but nevertheless. So, tonight I wanted to uh, give a talk that would contain some um, practice tips for you along the theme of gladdening the mind or brightening the mind. So, this is an interesting thing because we may usually assume that whatever experience that we're having in real time as far as whether we're feeling okay or not okay is just kind of how it is. And uh, there's no way to work with it other than just suck it up or to undertake some desperate attempt to modify it immediately, uh, often through the use of some kind of substance. But this is all part of our human pattern of wanting to be happy, right? So somebody once asked the Dalai Lama what the point of human life was, and the Dalai Lama said, said, well, it's to be happy. It's to be happy. That's the point of it. Which would mean that, you know, most of us would be then failures by by that standard, Uh, with intermittent periods of success. Uh, and we do want to be happy. You know, the, the Buddha, uh, once when he was talking about why he chose to teach after he became completely enlightened, said something along the lines that when when he looked around the world, he saw that human beings wanted to be happy. They were desperate to be happy. And in wanting to be happy, very often they did the very things that would cause them to be unhappy. In other words, they couldn't identify the the source of uh, well-being, the source of happiness, or access it. But they were kind of flailing around trying all kinds of stuff to um, be okay. But we know intuitively that everybody wants to be happy because when you really think about it, everybody is pretty much like us. So we know we want to be happy. And so it's not that difficult to make the intuitive leap in understanding that, well, that must be true for other people too. So sometimes in meta practice, we actually 
explicitly use that recognition that other people want to be happy as well in order to support our willingness to do the practice and to, and to cultivate a metta that extends beyond goodwill towards ourselves. So I don't, I don't know if um, this was part of the instruction today, but sometimes when you're moving, for instance, from working with metta just for yourself to somebody else, you would re- first reflect uh, just as I wish to be happy, so does X wish to be happy, as I wish to be safe, they wish to be safe, as I wish to be healthy, they wish to be healthy, as I wish to live with these, they wish to live with these. And sometimes just reflecting in that kind of way can make us more willing to at least make the attempt to extend goodwill even to somebody that we might necessarily feel any affinity towards or might actually find unpleasant or difficult. When we can get below the differences and our objections to them and uh, rest in this thought of, well, you know, we're all kind of like bozos on this bus and we all want the same kind of things, right? We're all just trying to fi- <laughs> all just trying to figure it out and make it work. So we all want to be happy, but how? How is this possible? So the Buddha had a, a very interesting take on the whole thing. So he says, for someone who is what he would he calls an uninstructed worldling. Isn't that a great phrase? Uninstructed worldling, meaning <laughs> somebody who hasn't heard the teachings, doesn't doesn't understand that, and um, kind of relates to reality in a strictly brick and mortars kind of way. He says, for that kind of person. Um, they immediately go to sense pleasure to try to find a way to fill the void. And we know, you know, whether it's um, getting objects that we want or experiences that we want or relationships or particular kinds of sensory experiences, you know, beautiful sights or sounds or smells or tastes or sensations, you know, that is a form of happiness, is it not? I mean... We can, we can own that. Yeah, that can feel really great. That can be wonderful. You know, every once in a while you might actually have a day where, you know, a lot of different uh, things come together and it's like, wow, life is really good. You know, I'm with the person that I love. You know, we just had a had a great meal. Now we're walking in a beautiful place and... Uh, you know, I just got this phone call that, you know, I got a new job offer and it's like all oh, toppers, toppers. And <laughs> and we know, even for instance, ideas can, or imaginings can be a, a vehicle for happiness, right? Sometimes you might be thinking about some uh, idea you have or some thing that you want to do or an invention that you want to create or a solution to something and the mind gets really involved with it and really engaged with it and it loves it. 
it's just so much fun. Happiness. Sensory happiness has satisfactions, and so do things like relationships and success and accomplishments and all of that. So not to to denigrate this in any kind of way, they're important aspects of human well-being and life. But there are also other forms of happiness which are outcomes of practice and which also support spiritual practice that are cultivations of happiness. And these particular kinds of happiness don't leave us chasing our tail or continuing to try to get something out of an experience or a situation that it actually doesn't have. So the Buddha talks about potential additional sources of happiness besides sense happiness. And he says one thing is something he calls the bliss of blamelessness. The bliss of blamelessness. Well, what does that mean? That sounds a little bit abstract. But what he's talking about there is having a clear conscience, having uh, integrity, having uh, self-respect, having an appreciation of our, our own wholesome qualities and wholesome deeds. Basically, having strong uh, sila or ethical behavior. He says, thinking about that, reflecting upon that, uh, realizing that that's the path that your life has taken because you've made the choice in that way can bring a lot of happiness and satisfaction. Uh, That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Sometimes a, like a, a classical monastic dharma teacher, if a student is struggling, might actually give them the assignment to go contemplate their sila. And for most Westernized people, whether you're from uh, the West or have come to the West, but for most Westernized people, the thought of contemplating your sila is like, ugh. What does that mean? I have to like go in there and find all my faults? Au contraire. The instruction is intended to bring you into contact with the aspects of yourself and your own behavior that are actually good, wholesome, that represent things like generosity and loving kindness and wisdom and compassion and those kinds of things. So this bliss of blamelessness can be a source of happiness that isn't sensory, but is nevertheless real. He also points to the happiness of wise concentration, where the mind has become unified in wholesome states. And this is a situation... Um, where there's deep pleasure both with the body and with the mind. When the mind is unified in a skillful, 
and beautiful abiding. There are um, states and experiences that can happen, for instance, with the cultivation of metta and compassion and empathetic joy and equanimity at a deep level that are so beautiful, so satisfying, so deeply pleasant that it would be difficult to find a sensory experience that could even compete with it. And then another thing that the the Buddha talks about uh, in addition to wise concentration, is just the the presence of wholesome uh, mental and emotional states. Things like faith, mindfulness, renunciation, uh, resolve, those kinds of things present in the mind can create happiness and, and well-being when they're recognized. And this really shouldn't be completely surprising when you think of the obverse, when you think of the opposite of this. Because you know you can experience deep unhappiness when the opposites of those states are present in your mind, right? When you've got ill will, when you've got greed, when you've got um, uh, hatred, those kinds of uh, states, that will make you unhappy, right? Isn't your subjective experience then being deeply unhappy? Sometimes even deeply unhappy when you're, you might be, say, sitting in a, in a really nice restaurant with somebody that you, you know, uh, like okay. <laughs> and you can still be miserable. Not a fun date. So there's a pointing to these teachings of the Buddha that this truth that non-material experiences and here's the the punchline here that we ourselves can cultivate and develop can provide great satisfaction and contentment even though they themselves are impermanent. So they're impermanent as all conditioned things are, any one arising of them, and yet they're onward leading, meaning they can uh, be increasingly present in the mind on more and more occasions in stronger and stronger ways. And when they are there, they can brighten and uplift the mind and support both your meditation practice and your well-being. So... There are ways sometimes when you're practicing or getting ready to practice where you can intentionally choose to do uh, what's called gladdening or brightening the mind by reflecting in certain kinds of ways by using your thinking capacity in a directed kind of way to help jumpstart your mindfulness and Uh, other wholesome qualities in order to be able to practice at a deeper and stronger level. So one of the ways that you can do that is in relationship to gratitude. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that state now. And then um, a bit later on, we're actually going to do a gratitude reflection uh, to help support your 
your understanding about how you might go about uh, gladdening the mind through reflection. So gratitude, interesting, very interesting state. So it's a close cousin to a lot of other wholesome states, in particular generosity. And generosity is a, is a very important value in Buddhist spiritual practice. So if you were doing like a high-level analysis of what the, the path of, of practice is, one way that it's sometimes described is uh, Buddhist practice is, starts with uh, generosity, uh, then it goes to um, da- it goes to sila, the practice of morality, and then it goes to uh, onto the other practices. But that it would start with dana, generosity. It, then you would learn sila, ethical, the ethical trainings, and then you would go on to the cultivation of samadhi, which is usually translated as concentration, but it, it basically means all of the the meditative trainings now here in the west you know we don't we want to get right down to business you know and get right down to the heart of it and uh yeah our our efficiency uh and um has uh some useful things to it as well as our energy and our uh, uh our drive to accomplish things but very often what shows up in meditative practice if if those other two elements are are absent or really underdevelop is that it's really really rough sledding to try to develop the meditation to a high level because you don't have a you don't have a foundation for it i think on the first night when jean was talking about taking the precepts the ethical trainings and why that was so important she said something like you know to to not um, be ethical in in your daily life is like uh, and and be trying to practice meditation is like tying a rowboat to the dock and then being surprised you know when you row that it's not going anywhere <laughs> so th- these are important pieces <clears throat> but so classically this generosity would be taught first so Often, when we feel grateful, we're actually experiencing the result of somebody else's generosity, right? Like there's something there that we're recognizing where we've been the beneficiary and, and this other quality of gratitude starts to arise in our hearts. And often, interestingly enough, when we ourselves are generous... Often it's because we feel some form of gratitude, right? So it seems like it flows back and forth in that kind of way. But zoning in on this quality of gratitude itself, the Buddha had some very interesting things to say about it. So one thing that he said that I find striking is he says, gratitude is the first mark of a person of integrity, Wow, that's a pretty strong statement. The first mark of a person of integrity. 
In other words, if you think you're, you're a standalone and you've never received anything from anybody, um, you know, that's pretty off. And, you know, often we feel gratitude when we recognize we've been the beneficiary of somebody else's open-heartedness. There's a dear friend of mine who passed away um, in the last year or so, uh, a woman named Sarah During, who actually sat the IMS three-month retreat like 17 times. (laughs) So... You know, she had she has the record, probably not soon to be exceeded, of of doing this. So she was like a really, really uh, serious practitioner, uh, and so she had the the meditative and the wisdom understanding that would be uh, developed through that kind of depth practice. And she had also had very strong paramis, very strong perfections of of the heart. So she was a, a lovely person in addition to being this powerful yogi. And um, she was an older person. I think she, she died. She was in her 90s, I think, by the time she passed away. But... Um, when you, you would look at her, you know, if you just looked at her face, you would see goodness. You know what I mean? There's certain people like that. You just see them, you see the face, and you recognize goodness. So this was uh, part of her quality. She also was somebody who wound up inheriting wealth, like a lot of wealth. And, um, you know, there's a lot of things that, people do when they have money. You know, many of them um, (laughs) extremely silly things. But Sarah had her Dharma values and what she did with her resources was to support things that were of benefit to beings. So... You know, when I first came here in 1987, IMS was, you know, really a run-down, kind of raggedy-ass place with... (laughs) Well, it was. It was was rough. It was rough, you know. (laughs) They were still having debates about, you know what to do about the cockroaches here, you know? And you, when you were in the dorm rooms, you (laughs) remember that, Gene? When you were in the dorm rooms, you're... You, you would have two foamies on the floor in one of the what are now single rooms, and there'd be like a little about that far between the foamies. You know, so if you were in a room with somebody for three months, a stranger, <laughs> although I must say you got to know them pretty well <laughs> after, you know, three months with foamies that far away from each other, you know, you, you, were, really, uh, you were really doing the renunciation thing. So anyway, uh, you were here for the practice, uh, um, um, unless you were a really deluded person and you thought it was a vacation, but there was nothing about the surroundings that would support that view then. (laughs) So unlike now, which could be a little bit confusing sometimes, but that's a separate story. But um, so anyway... Sarah supported uh, the renovation of 
the hall, the um, uh, she she largely supported the construction of the forest refuge, which is um, the the other retreat facility here. She was involved and supported the development of Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, as well as Cambridge Insight Meditation Center, as well as Spirit Rock on the West Coast. And she was completely unassuming in this you know what I mean you, you'd never know meeting this person that she had that kind of wealth and she was uh, providing that kind of fuel to what was going on around here because she was completely completely down to earth and open and you know could uh, could take a joke and you know give give one right back at you but she's somebody when I think of her I just feel a tremendous tremendous amount of gratitude because of all the things that she she could have done and she did this instead the first time i met her she she was uh pretty much living over at bcbs in one of the first cottages they built there and when they built the first cottages you know it was kind of rough and ready and i don't know i think they might have used some kind of a kit but the 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 floor didn't have any insulation under it. So I met her in like late autumn and I, I, I didn't know who she was. They just sent me over to meet her so, uh, to have a chat about the Dharma. So anyway, I went over to meet her to have a chat about the Dharma. And there's this, this small, gracious, refined looking woman, you know, sitting there with uh, two or three Zabutans under her feet because the floor was so, so cold. So when I think about her, I feel gratitude and I feel happiness and I feel a kind of uplift, as you can probably tell. So this quality of gratitude, this beautiful quality, like other wholesome states, is something that can be intentionally cultivated. And when you think about the cultivation of gratitude, you start to realize um, why that would be skillful. Because it turns the mind towards an awareness of everything that's present and available that's good and useful. That there are things present for you, there are things available for you. So then the mind is able to identify some riches, some gifts, some assets, even though there might be problems, right? If you can feel gratitude towards something, some aspect of your existence, some person, some experience, some gift, some connection, it moves us out of the, the scarcity mentality and it, because it has to acknowledge that there's some assets here. okay. To put it in the, the the language of our sometimes young mind, I got some stuff too, right? Because sometimes we think we don't, like we're the only ones that don't got stuff. Everybody else has stuff, but you know, not us. We don't have this, and we don't have this, and we don't have this, and we don't have this. But partly we experience it that way because we're not open to a different perspective, a perspective that they're. There actually are things that we receive. There are benefits that we receive from others and from life itself. 
So when there is a sense that we are recipients too, that we have things, then generosity both towards ourselves and towards others becomes a lot more possible because the heart and the mind aren't compressed as much by this sense of lack. So a gratitude reflection has the power to shift the mind away from this I don't have enough or I don't have any line of thinking and experiencing and turn it in a more empowering direction. And it does this by helping us to uh, see the gifts and the resources that we actually do have. And in this, it supports our sense of connection with others, right? Because sometimes we can feel so alone. So in this, there's a kind of opening and elevation of the heart that arises. So sometimes if you're having a difficult time in your life or on the cushion, it can actually be useful to take some time and do a a gratitude reflection. You know, to choose to do an exercise like the one I'm going to Uh, take you into. So I'll start with some reflections of things that I feel a lot of gratitude for. And then I'll turn it back to you and ask you to reflect in a particular uh, sequence of things in a way that would support you. So for me, a thing to be grateful for is the gift of Dhamma, the gift of the Dharma. And it's taught that the greatest gift that one can receive or offer is actually the the teachings of liberation. So top on the list of what one might get or one might offer are the liberation teachings themselves. And it's understood in this way because these teachings, when practiced empower the mind to awaken and to end its own struggle with delusion. They're the key to liberation and thus those who freely offer the teachings give a priceless gift. And it's part of um, the tradition here at IMS, for instance, that the teachers who teach here don't charge you to teach. So it's not structured in that kind of way. And this is partially an attempt to carry the uh, values uh, of the Dharma from Asia where Western people were offered the the teachings freely without charge by by teachers who um, um, didn't put a price tag on what they were doing. So in order for there to be a gift of Dharma, then there is the Buddha, the the originator of the teachings. So I have a, a great deal of respect for the historical Buddha. I think in many ways he may have been the the greatest multi 
dimensional genius that humanity has ever produced. Because in addition to having this incredibly powerful mind that through self-observation and self-reflection, just by attending to uh, in an observing kind of way to his own experience, was able to figure out how suffering was caused and reverse engineer it and say, well, if this is how it's caused, then if you don't want to suffer, this was what would be involved and kind of like reverse engineer it back to, okay, this means this and this and this and this and this, and here's how you would do it, spread it out in a co- coherent, co- cohesive and comprehensive way in a path and then go, here, humanity, this is what it is, this is how you do it. So there's that degree of... Uh, genius or that dimension of genius but there's a whole other dimension of genius which is this was all undertaken by someone who had walked the path of purification of his own heart and mind out of the altruistic intention to figure this all out so beings didn't need to suffer right so it's better than the light bulb Although it's good to turn on that kind of light too. But this was a a human being like us who totally transformed his own heart and mind out of this very uncompromising, altruistic uh, drive. So you take those two dimensions, you know, this intellectual genius and and this uh, fully developed heart and mind and you put it into one person. That's the historical... Buddha. So from the time of his own awakening until his death, um, shortly after his awakening, he taught unceasingly, unceasingly. And in fact, even when he was dying, he taught. His his last uh, phrase was something like, um, your liberation is in your own hands. All compound things are impermanent, meaning all conditioned arisings are anicca. Work out your own liberation with diligence. Okay, that's a pretty good parting. (laughs) All right, so he's still like reaching out at the end. So... So you yourself are the beneficiary of that because that's why this place is here and that's what you're you're learning. It's all born from that life. So, and then when I think uh, with gratitude, I think about the first generation of the Buddha's followers. So there's three different dimensions of this for me. So the first of these is There were people who were the Buddha's contemporaries. A lot of these were monastics, but some of them were were lay people. But they were a certain number of people who received the the teachings and practiced them to the point of mastery so that their inner meaning was penetrated and these beings themselves became liberated. 
once they understood the teachings in that kind of depth, then they guaranteed that the teachings would remain alive and embodied. And their inner meaning understood after the Buddha passed away. So there were people there who awakened so that there was tran- there was transmission. So then another thing I feel a lot of gratitude for is that the actual teachings were preserved. And this involved a, a council of the monastic community shortly after the, the Buddha passed away where they were wise enough to go, hey, okay, the Buddha's gone now. What are we going to do about the teachings? You know, How are we going to keep them alive? How are we going to keep the monastic communities going and be able to offer these to the lay people? So, you know, they, they got themselves together and figured out how they were going, going to preserve this. So for a, a, a few hundred years after the Buddha's death, there were actually people who were uh, memorizers. You know, you still see this in uh, some cultures, like in Islam, there are some people who could re- recite the Quran by memory, right? Well, there were there were people who could. Different people would memorize different parts of the Buddha's teachings, uh, largely through uh, learning to chant them. Interestingly enough and then would make sure that they taught follow-on generations the, the same things. And for, for this to be going on, since the monastics uh, don't like farm or engage in commerce, they don't uh, have money or anything like that, they were, this transmission was, uh, continuity was completely dependent on the lay people. So the lay people, especially the ones that, uh, in, uh, adjacent to the monasteries, were responsible for feeding the monks and providing them with shelter and medicine and, and robes, the, the four requisites. So not only did the lay people support this, so this could be going on, but the lay people themselves, or at least a certain number of them, actually became monastics. Because... Obviously, the monastics are not self-reproducing. <laughs> they recruit. Okay, so so you yourself are beneficiaries of this. So, you know, human beings, we screw up so many things. So many things. But we have to say that the dedicated and unbroken stewardship of the Buddha's, Buddha Dharma by the people of... Uh, South Asia is an example of what wasn't screwed up. <laughs> well, this is really important because can you imagine what was involved with carrying the teachings mind to mind for 2,600 years in a way that they, w- they would arrive in what, uh, Western culture w- with their potency intact this long after their genesis. How amazing is that? So there's tremendous uh, uh, gratitude 
towards the cultures of India and Burma and Sri Lanka and uh, Thailand. Because they kept it going through periods of destruction, invasion, corruption, um, a lot of ch- colonialism, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. But they, they didn't drop it. So, uh, and one of the main things that that is uh, most pertinent for us being here at IMS right now, all these raggedy-ass Western young people who went to India in the 60s with their long hair and their loose ways and their no money, with no understanding of what the social norms were in these communities and kind of like, you know, drift drifted into the temples and all the rest of it. Uh, they took them in. And I'm sure it was quite a shock to their system. <laughs> they, took, they took them in and they offered them the Dharma. They fed them while they practiced the Dharma. They you know, put them up while they practiced the Dharma. I would say that's some serious parami practice right there. So those those people were the core of those who came back to the West and started IMS. And from this, so many things have have gone uh, gone forth, including what's now called uh, MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, Mindfulness-Based Cognitive Therapy, all those other things. John Kabat-Zinn came up with the idea for uh, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction sitting in this hall. So he's got a big, big reach of things. (laughs) All going back to the Buddha. So you yourself are the beneficiary of that. So let's take this gratitude reflection a little bit further and let me turn it towards your own life. So I'd like to invite you to to kind of go into your, your sitting pose here for a moment or make yourself comfortable. So don't make yourself uncomfortable. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to to ask you to turn your attention inward and I'm going to to guide you in this process. So I would like you to reflect, which means actually use your heart-mind in an active kind of way now. I'd like you to reflect with gratitude upon other gifts in your life. So, a first one to consider. The way we've been sustained by the planet, by Gaia the Mother. The birds and plants. Animals, 
the water and sun. The fish and insects, the trees and grasses, the soil, the wind, All the beings who together make up the chain of life of which we are part. Sustain us. Let yourself say internally when you're ready, For this, I am grateful. Bringing attention to your heart center. For this, I am grateful. For all the ancestors, our lineage going back in time, the ones who survive to bring new life and protect it anew each generation, Those who struggled to find shelter and food and community and succeeded well enough no matter how difficult it was. They did it. For these many beings are tree of life. For these I am grateful. For my family, biological or surrogate, and or for my caretakers who protected me well enough that I survived to find my own footing. For these I am grateful. For the elders of our own queer community, those whose 
steadfastness, inspiration and courage made some space for us to be and express as we are. For our own ancestral tree. For those who came before who pushed open this door, I am grateful. For those who have taught me lessons of wisdom and love, who have shown me how to be in this world, for those who have been benefactors and teachers, for these I am grateful. For those who have been friends, companions, and fellow wayfarers on the path. For these I am grateful. those who have taught me the hard way how not to be how not to do for this gift of the wisdom of discernment for this too I am grateful for whatever health of body and mind I have, for this amazing life which flows through me. I am grateful. For the Dharma path, 
for the beauty which grows in me through self-blessing. For the way in which my heart learns the way. For the way in which virtue grows. For all those who have supported my path. For this I am grateful. Just allow yourself to rest in this reflection for a while. The wisdom that brought us here to this path open and flourish and may we find liberation for the benefit and welfare of all beings. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.